Welcome to Creation Training. I'm Mike Riddle, your host, and we have a ministry called Creation Training Initiative. And with us today is a special guest from Oregon, Dr. Thomas Kendall. And you have a PhD, I understand, in philosophy of biblical theology. That's great. With a focus on apologetics. Now, that's a pretty long title. Well, yeah, did you have to I read guess. a lot of books to get that? Well, actually, I did. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but that goes with the territory. Well, you know. tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I mentioned you're from Oregon. Where in Oregon are you from? And a little bit about your background, uh, degrees, and what what that really means. Okay. Well, I, uh, I was actually born in Medford, Oregon, and uh, spent time, uh, you know, going to college and everything out in Texas and especially Southern California. But after living in Southern California in the Greater Los Angeles area, I thought, why did I ever leave Oregon? So, and my friends or family or around Medford, so I decided to come back there. And uh, I, uh, you know, I grew up believing <clears throat> in evolution kind of because of uh, the fact that I was interested in science, especially in dinosaurs. And my older brother, who unfortunately is still an atheist evolutionist and the, the present, uh, president of the Southern Oregon Humanist Association, so obviously we, we don't see it eye to eye on things like that, but uh, he kind of took me under his wing when I was young and got me interested in science. And I was more interested in, in dinosaurs and biology and paleontology. He was more interested in physics and astronomy. But I kind of shot myself in the foot without realizing it, going to the public library. I'd get all the books I could get my hands on about dinosaurs, and I'd read that, memorize the geological column, and fantasize about how when I grew up, perhaps I would be a professional paleontologist and dig up dinosaur bones for a living, put them in the American Museum of Natural History, you know, and have such a fun job and get paid for it. But, you know, I got thoroughly indoctrinated in evolution at a very young age because, you know, when you go to library, you think, oh, this great institution of learning with all these books, they wouldn't be lying to me. You know, I mean, it, it's in a book. It must be true. And you're much more trusting when you're a child. You don't realize there's a lot of lies in the world that you have to be aware of. So I got indoctrinated with my own study, and then, of course, that's reinforced with our whole culture from cradle to grave, the school system and the movies and the textbooks and uh, just everything in general is thoroughly, you know, uh, inculcated with evolutionary doctrine, as if it's fact. You, you hear it from cradle to grave, billions of years, evolution's a fact. Uh, but later in my life, as I began to look at the philosophical implications of evolution, it really uh, bummed me out, you know, because if we just are slime plus time equals you, then there's no purpose in our existence. Now, those there's are no pretty meaning. technical terms. Yes, <laughs> yes, you know, from goo to you by way of the zoo, <laughs> yes. any way you want to put it, it doesn't, doesn't do much for the human ego, you know, that you have no purpose, no meaning, no destiny. Uh, if accidents had happened a little differently in the universe, you wouldn't even exist, and the universe wouldn't care whether you did or not. It's not conscious of your existence. It didn't give you life for a purpose. And, you know, when you die, you rot back into plant fertilizer, and that's the end of you forever. That doesn't sound very good. Doesn't sound very good, and you lose everything. You might have been king of the world. Everybody loved you, uh, but you won't even remember you ever existed when you die because there's no spiritual nature to you that will survive the grave. And so I thought, you know, the Bible sounds good, you know, with all this promise of eternal life and a God who loves us and created us and died for us and everything, but I don't want to believe it just because it sounds good. I want to know it's true. And it, it bothered me that... Christians didn't have any good answers for my evolutionary questions. Well, if the Bible is true, what about radioisotope dating and carbon-14? You know, what about dinosaurs? What about all these things that seem to contradict biblical history? And uh, evangelicals seem to have this attitude of, well, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. You know, and I thought, well, the Muslims would say the same thing. The Quran says it, I believe it, that settles it. Yet they contradict one another. They can't all be true, you know, logically. And it, it, it bothered me that evolution gives you no hope, no purpose, no meaning, but 
everybody else didn't seem to have very good answers that made sense, you know, that you could hang your life on and say, this is logical, this makes sense, I, I can reasonably grasp this and say it's true. And it's beyond reasonable doubt, you know, we can't prove anything absolutely except perhaps in mathematics. But when it comes to ordinary choices of life, we do it on what is most probably true. And when you have enough evidence, you can say that beyond reasonable doubt, maybe not absolutely, but beyond, there's more reason to believe it than to not believe it, beyond reasonable doubt. And I didn't feel that way about the Bible and Christianity. But uh, my sister got saved, gloriously transformed. She was the kind of person you'd cross the street to get out of her way, you know, black cloud hovered over her wherever she went. <laughs> and when she got saved, it was such a miracle, it just took me aback. And she started quoting the Bible at me, and I began to look at that. She invited me to church, and uh, they prayed for me. I'd had terrible migraine headaches, and uh, those went away. I never had another one again. I gave my life to the Lord, and felt called to the ministry, and I thought, you know, that I would be, I always liked teaching, and I thought I would be a teacher, perhaps in a Bible college or a seminary. So I went through seminary-type education, uh, and later I realized that during these years I was going to the summer institutes at the Institute for Creation Research, uh, where they, you know, teach you to be able to present uh, creation science. It was actually designed for uh, teachers and other professionals that would, would want to be able to actually go out and teach. And I went through that quite a bit, and I was teaching uh, part-time, you know, on the side um, to churches on creation and, and general Christian apologetics. And they kept saying, well, you should go into this full-time. I thought, oh, no, I'm, I'm going to be, you know, a pastor or Bible college teacher or something like that. Uh, later, I realized that is really what God wanted me to do, <laughs> and uh, go on the highways and byways and, and teach on uh, primarily creation science apologetics. So I went to the... Uh, uh, enrolled with the Graduate School of Institute for Creation Research, which back then was fully accredited to give degrees in natural and applied science at the master's level. And I enrolled in their course that they had on uh, creation science, which uh, was Advanced Creation Science Studies was the name of the course, and it covered all kinds of different areas of science that impinge on the origins issue. So it wasn't just one field or another, but a whole hodgepodge of things, which was very nice. Unfortunately, I didn't get to finish my degree because the graduate school shut down. They moved to Dallas and lost their accreditation due to the, uh, getting blindsided by the um, Dallas uh, uh, Public Board of Education or whatever, State Board of Education, didn't like the fact that they were teaching both creation and evolution. You know, they weren't refusing to teach evolution, but they were teaching both, and uh, they didn't want to accredit them if they were doing that, even though everything else academically was, you know, par excellence, that didn't matter. So, but I did uh, get enough uh, study there, really good training, did complete a graduate level certificate in advanced creation science studies, and I've uh, put in 40 years now of teaching on apologetics, so I have a lot of life experience, you know. Uh, people ask me sometimes, well, what are your credentials? And I say, well, uh, you want the credentials that don't count or the credentials that do count? <laughs> and they say, what do you mean? And I say, well, I don't consider my degrees to count for that much. You know, you go, you study, you pay the tuition, you, you get a piece of paper. I have 40 years of experience under my belt, and I've been able to defeat evolutionist PhD scientists in university settings, so I've got the goods with the experience. And that's kind of how Paul, when they challenged him, what are your degrees, what are your credentials? He said, my credentials are the fruit that I produce. Exactly, and Jesus said, by their, by your, their fruits you will know them. So right. what is the fruit? It's not our wisdom, it's not our degrees that count. That is very true. What are we producing? Yes, yes. So the Lord uses me, uses the simple things to confound the wise. Uh, they, they often say, well, you've, you've got theology degrees and a certificate in uh, creation science studies, but that's not very good. And I said, well, I don't determine truth by people's degrees. You know, people with PhDs and with Nobel Prizes are going to hell because in God's eyes they're fools. They've rejected truth. But 
truth, facts, evidence, logic, that's what we use to determine what's truth. You know, it's called epistemology, the, the art and science of determining what is true and what is false. And in that area, I excel. I've been gifted by God. I can present a good case. I say, if you can find fault with my science, my logic, my evidence, then do it if you can. But if not, that's my credentials. And I've had no trouble with that. You know, they, they try to nitpick at straws, clutching at straws, but when it comes to what really matters, they don't have the evidence, and that becomes very evident. Wonderful. Now, I just recently attended one of your seminars, <laughs> and I was fascinated with, with some of the topics. <laughs> yeah. I just watched the audience. They were just leaning forward. They were enthralled by mm. some of these creatures that you were talking about. <laughs> yes. And I want to spend some time with that. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, just to show what you have learned along the way about God's amazing creation. Oh, yeah. It had a title. Yes. But the word used for the title is <laughs> kind of baffling. So yes. you, then you explain <clears throat> what that really means. Did yes. you talk about the title of your talk? Yeah, the title was uh, Biomimetics. Ooh, that means, sounds pretty scary. Yeah, yeah, it sounds scary, but it's actually very simple. Uh, bio in the Greek means life, and mimetics is simply another word for mimicry. Mimicry simply means to copy something. So it, it's a new burgeoning field of science within the past 10 to 15 years where more and more scientists, who are evolutionists primarily, have been encouraging one another that when you're trying to find an engineering solution or a new design to fix a problem you've got, instead of uh, you know just tackling it from scratch and doing maybe millions of dollars worth of uh, research and development, ask the biomimicry question. Of course, their concept is that, well, there's genius in the world of nature because it took millions of years to perfect all these designs by evolution and natural selection and all this. They don't give the glory to the real genius who put it there, but they recognize the ingenious design that is there, but they just don't give credit to who really did it. But they say, let's look at biology and, and see if there are applications there where this problem has already been addressed in the world of biology and we can simply co-opt that design for our own technology and save a lot of R&D and maybe even have a superior design than we might have come up by our own uh, from scratch. So uh, biomimetics or biomimicry means God invented it first and although they don't acknowledge God, the evidence is there, they see the design, they desire to emulate it and what we've also found many times is that uh, in looking at the world of biology, not only does it have good designs that we can copy for our own use, many of the designs we thought we innovated, we originated, we thought up with our great intelligence and we brought uh, into invention was already there. It was already there from the beginning. God thought of it first. Well, yeah. give us an example. Let's go through a couple of examples. Well, there's, there's a lot of examples, perhaps an interesting one, you know, something as simple as a decoy. You know, decoy ducks have been made for centuries. You carve them out of wood, paint them, look like ducks. You stick them out there, and the idea is ducks ordinarily might not want to come down, especially if they know there's hunters in the area, but the decoys make it look like it's safe. Well, these ducks are down there. There must be food down there. They're not being harassed or molested by hunters. Well, we'll just come down and join them. So a decoy is designed to bring in creatures close that might ordinarily not come close. But that concept, as simple as it is of a decoy, is not something man thought of and originated. God created it first. You mean copycats? We, we are copycats. We're not the great innovators. We're the great copiers, even inadvertently, you know, having recreated things that, that God had already thought of and created first. And the decoy is one. Nowadays, decoys are even animated. You know, they can have little motors in them and be tied to a tether with an anchor and they'll swim around and they'll flap their wings, they'll make a duck call with their own audio system. So that's even more effective, you know, to bring in the ducks. But God created a decoy on a freshwater clam called the Lampsilis clam. 
And this clam has to mount on its back what looks for all the world like a little fish, like a little minnow. It has the body like a fish, eye like a fish, fins like a fish, tail like a fish, and it even looks like it's swimming. Well, wait a minute, a clam is just a uh, shell that just opens and closes. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. You're saying this looks like a fish? It mounts what looks for all the world like a little fish on its back and a fish that even moves like it's swimming against the current, an animated decoy. But why in the world would a clam need to do that? Well, the Lampsilla's clam cannot, uh, you know, procreate. It cannot uh, uh, have progeny unless it gets fish to come in close to it. And this ordinarily doesn't happen because clams are ignored uh, <clears throat> by, by fish because they have hard shells. Fish can't eat them. They're as worthless as a rock, so they ignore them like rocks. But in order to reproduce, it has to draw fish in close because the only way it can reproduce is to actually identify where that fish is. We think they do it uh, by an electrical field somehow. Knows the orientation of the fish, sees the fish's open mouth, so to speak, squirts its tiny larvae into the mouth of the fish. And these larvae have little hooks attached and they cling on to the gills and uh, extract nutrients from the bloodstream in the gills till they grow into tiny little clams that then fall off onto the bottom of the stream bed and grow into adult Lampsilis clams that mount their own animated fish to draw in other fish so that they can reproduce. So it's classic decoys bring in creatures close you need to come in that won't, won't ordinarily happen. But God made this exquisite animated decoy that, that you know, is like a work of art. It didn't need to be that exquisite. You know, just a little filament that would wiggle like a worm would be plenty to bring in a fish. And that's similar with what we have with the anglerfish. It has just a very simple little worm-like thing. It wiggles around and it eats all the time with fish that come in on that lure. But I think God did that to show that he's not just the great engineer, he's the great artist. He did something very exquisite, very artistic, very amazing to show that, you know, with men this is impossible, with evolution it's impossible, but God can do anything. He doesn't have to settle for the simple. It doesn't have to be just enough for survival. He can put his artistry anywhere, even putting a, this exquisite, beautiful little decoy on a freshwater clam. Amazing. So we should be careful about clams now. <laughs> yeah. no, not well, to worry. It's freshwater clam. You, know, you usually eat marine clams from the ocean. You know, so. What an amazing decoy. God invented it first. God invented it first, yes. Yeah. Now, before we go to another one, I was just fascinated listening to all these different creatures, and it just mm. rattled right off, and it's, mm. it just shows there has to be a creator, a designer there. Yes. You can't have my random yes. chance. It just defies yes. all logic. Well, we used our intelligence and our inventive capability to create things like decoys and other things in the beginning. You know, we thought we did it first, and we'd give ourselves a pat on the back, look what we invented, and then to realize somebody with intelligence invented that first and did it better than we ever right. have. It's better than we can so do. So let's give glory to the higher intelligence. Now, if somebody wanted to find out about uh, these things, do you have a website? I do. Uh, it's hosted at the Northwest uh, Creation Association up in Seattle, and I believe their website is uh, nw.creation.net, or nwcreation.net. And uh, if you type in my name on that website, it'll bring up my website, Reasons for Faith Ministries. And if somebody really enjoyed what we're doing here today and wanted you to come out and speak, how would they get a hold of you? Uh, they'd just call me on my uh, iPhone. I always have it with me. You know, the area code is 541-778-4584. And we're going to make sure that's on the screen there yeah. so people can yeah, see that's, that. That's on my website. I recently moved, so the address on the website is not correct. Uh, and if they want to order any of the DVDs, they would simply call that phone number uh, with a Visa or MasterCard. They can order over the phone. I'm not set up okay. with PayPal. And they can order over the phone. I can ship it to them. And they're just $15 a piece. Uh, there's four in the series on biomimetics or biomimicry because there's so many different examples. 
Uh, and if you pay for three, you get a fourth one free. So you can get four for just $45. And these would be good for about what age? They'd be good, I would say, middle school through adult, easily enough. I mean, the, the creatures are fascinating, and they're not that technical, but they're still very interesting, I think, even to younger students. And they're, they're, it's almost like a neutral presentation in some respects. <coughs> they were just looking at design, and in the video, you give the glory to God. Right. So that's not intelligent design, it's yeah. God-made design. We You're know right. who the designer is. Yeah, he is the superior intelligence yes. who thought of it first. But yeah. uh, it just draws people in to listen to this tremendous mm -hmm design God has done, complexity oh. in there. Oh yeah. Purposeful complexity. Yeah, he does it with complexity that we cannot match even in the 21st century. You know, the tiniest living reproducing cell can do things none of our machines can do. You know, we don't have machines that can extract materials and energy from the environment, process them, build themselves up, grow, automatically maintain and repair themselves, and then reproduce themselves. Virtual exact copies of themselves over and over, and continue doing that for thousands of years. Can we create any machine that with any, without any outside maintenance and repair to keep it going would keep on going and even reproducing, something none of our machines can do, and keep doing it for thousands of years? You know, with men this is impossible, but yes. with God all things are possible. Well, let's go to a couple more examples here. Okay. I, I just got to hear some of this. <coughs> okay. Well, one, interestingly, is the swift. <clears throat> the swift is a high-flying bird. And recently they put tiny little tracking devices on the Swifts to prove something that we had uh, suspected for a long time. And that is that they stay airborne without ever touching the ground for nearly seven months straight. And they tracked them 24-7 with computers and proved finally something we had suspected, but that actually is proven fact now. And the reason is they're so equipped to fly, they have big broad wings, almost look like the God's equivalent of the U-2 spy aircraft, you know, I'll tremendous lift. That one back in the 60s. They, yeah. And they still use them today. Yeah, yeah, last millennium. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> but they, uh, they uh, live on the wing. They don't have to come down to eat because they eat bugs in the air. They don't have to come to the ground to drink because they just swoop down and, and skim water off the surface of a lake without landing. Uh, they mate in the air, and in order to stay up that long, they have to sleep in the air. The only reason they ever actually come down part of the year is that they do have to uh, lay eggs in a nest. If they could find a way to suspend uh, a nest in the air, they'd stay in the air all the time. But uh, they have to sleep while they're, sli uh, while they're flying. And so God invented for them the first autopilot, where they actually shut down half their brain so that they can rest, not using as much brain power, but the part of the brain that remains active uh, engages this autopilot and they fly in a circle at uh, nearly uh, two miles high, about 10,000 feet. And they're in a circle over where their nest is or where good hunting is for bugs, wherever they don't want to be blown away from that. So they shut down half their brain, they're sleeping, they fly in the circle, and their autopilot senses so sensitively shifts in the wind, wind drift, which could blow them miles away by the morning if they didn't react to it. So while they're sleeping, the autopilot is measuring, you know, when you're going this way on the circle, if the wind is coming this direction, you have a headwind. You have to speed up a little bit or you'll be pushed back. But on the opposite end of the circle, you now have the tailwind. It'll push you too far if you don't slow down. So while they're sleeping, the autopilot engages. They fly in a circle, speed up, slow down, speed up, slow down, precisely with the changing of the wind in the morning. <laughs> they're right over where they want to be. And they have looked Amazing. at this and said our best navigation systems and wind drift correction systems we have in modern aircraft can't do it as precisely as this first autopilot that God put in the Swift. That would take incredible mathematical knowledge. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. And com incredible computing power in the brain. Yeah. 
That doesn't make us look too smart now. <laughs> they shot half their it radar. Took, it took us uh, many uh, millennia before we even invented aircraft, much less put in autopilots. But God invented aircraft and autopilot from the very beginning. Well, we can do better. We don't shut half our brain down. We can shut our whole brain down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We do that sometimes. Well, it, it seems that way. Uh, politicians especially are adept at that, I think. <laughs> no. But uh, we won't pick on them. You know, they need all the help we get. Yes. they can get. We'll pray for what, them. What an amazing creature, the swift. Yes. And just seven months can stay in the air. Yes. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Nearly seven months, not quite, but very close. I used yeah. to long jump, run and long jump. Imagine how far I could go <laughs> if I could just stay in the air an hour. <laughs> oh, I know, yeah. You'd have the world record uh, yes. by far and away. Yeah. <laughs> seven months in the air and they autopilot. Yeah. Incredible yeah. creature. While they're sleeping, they compensate and stay right where they should be. And uh, it is amazing. Yeah. Now, another interesting thing that... Uh, God invented first was, of all things, a G-suit. You know, pilots, when they pull too many Gs, the blood will be pulled out of their brain and cause them to pass out, black out, and of course they lose control and either crash or easily be shot down. And this especially became a prominent problem of G-lock in World War II when we had fast enough aircraft that would pull enough Gs that you could easily lose consciousness. Wasn't now, Gs now, it's like yeah, you're on a G roller coaster. Yeah, yeah. G-forces, in other words, what we feel sitting right here is one G, the force of gravity pulling your body down to the ground. So you take that force and multiply it numerous times, that's multiple Gs of force. Usually, like in a centrifuge, when they test uh, uh, pilots, uh, military pilots, they will subject them up to nine or 10 Gs, even with the G suit on, it, it's such a pull on the blood in their brain that, that even with the G suit trying to push it back up into your head, uh, it just is overcome by the force so and they, that, they will they pass, out. pass out. Yeah, without that, they can pass out, you know, easily at six or seven Gs without, uh, without uh, some of them might make it up to nine without a G suit, but so when it gets up to 10, you're really pushing it. That puts know? a limit on what our roller coasters can do. Yes, yeah, unless you want your passengers passing out and suing you, you know, for, for you know, pain and suffering, whatever. Yes. But, uh, yeah, so the, the G-suits we've had up to the present have been pneumatic. Uh, basically, the most complex one we have recently took a $100 million taxpayers' research and development, and it's specialized. You have to have a special computer with nozzles and, and uh, hoses that connect to the G-suit, and it measures with computer as the G-forces are changing. It pumps up or lowers the pressure to help you compensate for that. Uh, but a Swiss uh, former Air Force pilot, he said, you know, there must be something better than that. These just still don't work. It's basically a glorified World War II design, and we're in the 21st century. But he asked the biomimicry question, has this problem been addressed in the world of biology, and if so, how does it work? And they found that the dragonfly can dart around and change direction so quickly, they estimate it endures 30 Gs with impunity. Doesn't pass out, doesn't have any problem. So they looked at its anatomy and they found that it doesn't use compressed air to help it, it uses fluid. Its internal organ structure, especially the cardio system, is entirely surrounded with fluid. And the fluid dynamics dampens the G effects very effectively just by the laws of physics. Very simple design, but more effective than anything we've come up with. They took uh, NATO pilots and had them test both the combat edge, the best pneumatic one we've come up with that cost 100 million taxpayer dollars, R&D, they tested against this simple design where he just has bladders instead of having compressed air, they're filled with water and a little antifreeze to keep him from freezing if it gets cold. And that worked so much better. Every pilot that tried both said, we want the Dragonfly G-suit. We can go out and pull 10 Gs sustained without passing out for the first time. Not only that, when you try to do that with a combat edge, you might get up to 10 Gs, but it wears you out, it's hard on you. 
at the end you're so tired that you have to have the crew chief come over and pull you out of the cockpit. You're just exhausted. But when we wear the label, which is German for dragonfly, the dragonfly G-suit, he said, you can pull 10 Gs all day, no problem, and you're not worn out at the end. It's a superior design. But God thought of it first, <coughs> gave it to the dragonfly, and here in the 21st century, it's still better than anything that we ever came up with. And his original design is still better because the dragonfly can pull 30 Gs. 30 we G's. can do 10 G sustain, which is a big milestone, but God's design is still better. What an amazing, there's just three, example, three creatures <coughs> yeah. that God invented everything first. Put yep. all the information yeah. in And he did it better. And did it better than <laughs> yeah. anything our scientists can do today. Yes. We're still yes. copying what he did and we'll continue to copy yeah. what he did. Many times copying it inadvertently, not even knowing that he had thought of it first until we look at the world of biology and find out, oh, somebody thought of that first and put it there. Many other things we look at <coughs> trying to find good uh, design innovations that we hadn't thought of but that are there, that God thought of first, and we copy them for our own use. Uh, and that's more purely the sense of biomimicry, you know. But uh, we inadvertently mimic many of his designs, reinventing them ignorantly, thinking we were the first ones yes. to do it. Well, Dr. Canel, you, you have a DVD <coughs> of this out? I do. I have, how uh, many creatures are on that DVD? Oh, I don't know exactly. I have four different DVDs on biomimicry, and there are multiple examples in each one. Each one is uh, close to an hour in length, so you've got quite a bit of material there. Well, if you found this fascinating, <coughs> powerful, evidence mm. from an all-purposeful, all-powerful creator God who designed things first and we're just copying, you need to get a hold of Dr. Kindle. And how can they do that again? Uh, the best way is uh, by phone. By and, phone. Uh, and and that would give be us that number again. Area code 541-778-4584. Uh, you can also reach me by email and it's uh, Dr. Tom K, D-R-T-O-M-K at charter, C-H-A-R-T-E-R dot net. Okay, so if you want to get some of these videos, they're great for junior high and above. Fascinating information about design in creatures. So great, our scientists can't even do it yet. Completely refutes any concept of evolutionism. Well, we're going to have to have you back, Dr. Kendall, because I heard you talk about something else recently, uh, about the origin <laughs> of life. Yes. And yes. that is a win for creationists and a major uh, defeat for the evolutionists. It is. It's one area where we actually have them by the throat. They have not a single uh, evidence in their favor, either experimentally or based on the laws of chemistry, physics, or mathematics. And I kind of use that as the acid test. You know, if they won't acknowledge that we need an intelligent designer at least to get that first living cell, then they're never going to acknowledge them anywhere. Like Jesus said, if you're faithful in the little things, you'll be faithful in the big things and everything else. But if you won't even acknowledge the little things that, that are obvious, you're not going to acknowledge the bigger. So we got to have you back because I want to talk about the origin of life. It's one of my favorite topics. Mm, me too. And it's, just, <laughs> and it's not difficult science. This, this is stuff junior hires can understand. Yes. It's basic science. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have you back, and I want to discuss that one. I'm, mm. I'm Mike Riddle again. We're here with Dr. Thomas Kendall. And mm. uh, again, your PhD was what? Uh, in uh, philosophy of theology, majoring in biblical apologetics. Biblical apologetics, which yeah. doesn't mean we apologize. It means right. we can defend what we believe. That's we right. have a verbal defense, which is a command by God. So stay tuned. We're going to come back later another time with Dr. Kendall. We're going to talk about the origin of life. And it's not going to be difficult, folks. Hmm. Well, thank you very, very much for being with us. My pleasure. God bless you. God bless you, too. Thank you. Our online videos are free for anyone to view or download. However, it does take finances to continue producing these programs. If these lessons have been helpful, you might consider supporting the Ministry of Creation Training Initiative.
You can mail a check to CTI, Post Office Box 2415, Eagle, Idaho 83616. Or you can go to our website, creationtraining.org, and make your donations that way. Your donations of $20, $100 or more will enable us to continue to share the good news of God's Word worldwide. As it states in Jeremiah 32, 17, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. Thank you and God bless.